got a major problem here, Cook. There's been a major crisis. War is imminent. The next 24 hours will probably tell. There's always a major crisis and there's always talk of war. You'll forgive me, General, but my own problem has a little more immediacy for me. It's a little more personalized. I've got a week's food left and two broken bones in one arm. Can't another ship be sent out for me? We're going to go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. Hey guys, it's Terry here. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation last week about Uncle Simon, uh, aka uh, Pimpot, whatever. Um, that was a fun talk for an episode that uh, had a very small cast and uh, you know not a lot of plot, but a lot of dialogue and a quote-unquote twist ending. Um, I don't know this one. This one we're going to deal with here, uh, season five, episode nine, uh, Probe Seven, over and out, has a cast of two-ish. Um, a lot of dialogue and a twist ending. So we'll see how we uh, feel about this one after just having a, a similar setup to last week. Yeah, I, I'm not going to pad this one, man. I this I, I don't know about this conversation. Well, I actually, I, it's the subject matter. The conversation is going to be great because you know us. You know, <laughs> I'm familiar with me. Yes. <laughs> Uh, I think we're having an okay conversation. I just do. This is one of those ones. It's like, uh, ever since we watched, um, Oh, what was it? The parallel in season four. I always wonder if it's going to be one of those ripcord episodes that we're just like, you know, what? let's just do it. Let's just get out of here. Let's just, let's just get gone. Um, this, this one felt very much like it. I just, my hand was on my emergency shoot the entire time. I'm like, do I do it? Do I pull the shoot? Do we get out? Guess we'll find out when we talk about I- this. Yeah, I, I I'm totally there with you, man. I, I understand what you what you're talking about. So, yeah, so yeah, but we'll, we're going to get to that. <laughs> yeah, not to not to tip our hands. Maybe we love this so much that we can barely talk about it. But yeah, yeah, we, uh, we yeah. may be bluffing. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's you. That's that's always a good side of a podcast where it's like we're not going to tell you our true feelings till the end. Uh, again, like I said, this is season five, episode nine, probe seven over and out air date, 11, 29, uh, number one song is I'm leaving it up to you by Dale and grace. Uh, I am not familiar with the song. I need to look it up and actually listen to it. Uh, number one film fun and Acapulco. It's an Elvis film. So I'm going to guess that it was really dealing with, um, you know, all the issues of the day, like, you know, the, the possible encroachment of, uh, you know, uh, communism, you know, on the shores, uh, racial inequality, um, you know, the wage gap. I'm sure it's all covered in this Elvis film. Uh, yeah, maybe not, but, uh, <laughs> definitely a cash grab, I think, because, you know, Elvis. Yeah. So. <laughs> I like, it's like, it's like, it's called fun in Acapulco and they don't even go to Acapulco probably. Right. And so, all right. Uh, 
So uh, we talked about this a little bit last episode uh, that the, the the air dates of the Twilight Zone got um, the, there was a delay uh, that and all television and all the world stopped for two weeks because of the assassination of uh, John F. Kennedy. Um, so the episode that was supposed to air um, the week of the assassination was one called Night Call, which we're, we're going to get to later in the season. That got bumped. Um, and then this one is the one that played the week after. So, um, what happened now on 11, 20, So two days before, um, this episode aired, uh, president Lyndon B. Johnson addressed a joint session of Congress in his first major speech since being sworn as president of the United States and pledged that he would not depart from the programs that had been started by his predecessor, JFK. And what would become as the let us continue speech, uh, he urged Congress to pass legislation for a tax cut and the civil rights bill. And he said, all I have, I would have given gladly not to be standing here today. Uh, he called Kennedy the greatest leader of our time, struck down by the foul state of our time as well. Uh, reminding his listeners that Kennedy had said, let us begin in his inaugural address. Johnson added today in this moment of new resolve, I would say to my fellow Americans, let us continue. You know, let it, let us here um, have highly resolved, um, highly resolved that John F., uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy did not live or die in vain. So, pretty powerful moment. Yeah, I'm glad that he carried the the the, the conversation. Well, I'm not even the torch. But like, like he the carried, yeah, that way. yeah, yeah. The way he carries it, yeah. Like, let us continue. And of course, that was a lot of like I know Kennedy made the promise to put a man on the moon before the end of the decade and all those other things, and also civil rights bill, which that should go first, not people on moons. So sorry, I got civil rights first, moon people later. Um, but yeah, that's all I got for for uh, day and date because uh, anything else that was going on in this world right now, like in the world at this point, was all focused on the assassination and funeral of of JFK. Like this, this stopped the world. Oh, I do have something for the the uh, the air date of of uh, Probe Seven over and out. Um, so the Trans Canada Airlines Flight Eight Thirty One crashed in a field near a village in uh, Quebec shortly after taking off from uh, Montreal's Deval International Airport en route to uh, Toronto as the first stop on a uh, flight to Vancouver. All one hundred and eighteen people on board. Um, 111 passengers and seven crew were all killed. So yeah, I guess it wouldn't be a, a normal episode of, uh, in, of, um, <laughs> of, uh, strange highways, not, yeah, yeah. Uh, strange when, highways, sorry. Um, uh, uh, strange highways. If we didn't mention some kind of plane crash or something, you know, the, it, keeping the mode high. <laughs> yeah. The only thing that would have like made that more specific to our show is if like there had been survivors, but like a herd of like rogue moose, just trampled them on their way out. That would have probably been like, I'm, I am making light of a plane crash. I should not. Uh, but that would have been more, you know, like, like a, a team of, of rabid hockey players, like burst out and just trampled those survivors. That, that would probably have made it the most uh, strange highways like story ever. Yeah. I, I wish I could find, I could have found something that was a little bit more lighthearted, especially in comparison to what you were just talking about with the assassination. Um, yeah, that that's not really quite what I was able to find, and uh, I guess that's how the the dice roll sometimes. Yeah, especially in the sixties. I mean, and and I w- will say many things about this episode, or maybe not enough, or not. I'm sorry, maybe maybe not much. I say, but I will say that um, this one being such a soft landing and hopeful 
might have probably been like the the best one for people to watch and tune out to at this time. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good point. I think uh, like if you were gonna uh, if you were gonna tune into uh, Twilight Zone, you probably would have been a little bit disappointed. Maybe I don't know, but at least it was something other than the current events that were going on at that point. Yeah. It wasn't like uncle Simon demanding hot chocolate and just, you know, berating his, uh, you know, his human niece. Right. So, um, all right. So let's just get to our, 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 uh, cast and crew here. Um, there are some, some revelations to be had here. So Terry, please, please, uh, tell us, uh, who, who is involved in this episode. All right. Our director on this episode is Ted post, uh, three other episodes that he contributed to the twilight zone. Uh, a world of difference, and then we'll uh, we'll talk about two more uh, later this season. And then he also directed um, Magnum Force, a uh, great Dirty Harry film, um, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and of course Paul is going to want to love to talk about this right now. He directed the Baby. Yeah, Terry, what is the Baby? This is a fascinating film that somehow eluded me for the 37 years of my life until more recently when we went to a, uh, a film event where you made me and my wife watch it. And it is it's a treat, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, I, I don't know if I want to give too much more away to people who have not seen it because this is a great blind watch of a film. Yeah, it's from 73. Um it is available on Shutter right now. If people are subscribed to that service, again, Terry's right. The less the less you know, the better. Um, but when Terry says a film event, like in this in twenty twenty, the year of the plague, uh, I, I would let people know that um, I, I uh, for my birthday back in October, I asked my wife if we could book a theater and just have like a handful of people in the movie theater. So it was a total of 10 of us and we were all spaced out and the, that's a, it's a local Cleveland, um, a chain that, uh, that you could pay the money to have people in and you could pick the movie. And I was like, well, we're watching the baby. Cause so half the people in the theater had never seen it before. The other half had. So it was, it was a fun game of watching the new people react and watching the people watching it again, watch the new people and also reacting as well. It's, it's, it's a, it is a weird movie and Ted post uh, directs it with a very steady hand. I'll just say that his direction in that film is actually quite, quite effective. Uh, and you want to, you want to see a movie that gets weird with, with a, like a humdinger of an ending, watch the baby. And I, I wrote my notes here, Terry, uh, is it directed by Ted post second of four twilight zone episodes, a world of difference. And then I wrote all in caps, the baby, the baby, the baby. <laughs> I knew that you were going to want to talk about it because I mean, that's probably the biggest subject of this discussion really is the baby. Um, and yeah, emphasis on the weird part of this film. Uh, like it is, it's not a gory film. It's not something that like, if you're faint of heart when it comes to horror or something like that, it is just a strange film. And I think it does need to be viewed, uh, especially with friends with beer, maybe some pizza, uh, you know, at a later time, maybe you're all wearing gas masks, uh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's, it's definitely one that I was super excited to, to get to here. And I also want to mention that, uh, he directed, uh, Ted post directed eight episodes of a show called arc two in 76. Here's the premise. Uh, three young scientists travel around the country in a, the 25th century after the world has been ravaged by pollution in their high-tech RV called Arc 2. They study the land and help out those in need. 
Um, do you think maybe that he's like, Hey, I could direct this. He's like, what have you done for us? He's like, can I just show you a little episode called probe seven over and out? They're like, you're hired, sir. <laughs> I don't know if that was going to be part of his portfolio to get him the job, but I mean, maybe <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, he went on to do like some terrific films. I mean, Magnum force is amazing. If you, if you're a Clint Eastwood fan, if you like dirty, Harry, uh, Magnum Force is awesome. It's probably one of my favorites as far as the Dirty Harry series. Well, well it is my favorite. It's a very short series, but it's a terrific film. And here's the admission: I don't think I've seen a Dirty Harry film. So I, I know, I know, I got to get to uh, Escape from Alcatraz and some Dirty Harry films because it's all Eastwood, and that that's you know much shame on my house. I guess you're only more interested in doing all of the Westerns that he was in instead. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, like Eastwood <laughs> as a, um, conflicted as a human being as he is, he's a very striking, uh, like film performer. Right. And there's some, there's a lot of things that I've, I've, I've missed out on his that I need to get to. Yeah. It, I would definitely suggest to anybody who likes, uh, anything that Clint Eastwood has done, if you dig like some of his westerns and that, check out the Dirty Harry series. I mean, it's just so badass. He's just—he's such a bad dude, man. I love Dirty Harry, and uh, I have the box set. So if you want to borrow it, Paul, nice. I will bring it over uh, with gloves. So <laughs> yeah, and then I'll let you—I'll I'll force you to have the physical copy of the baby again. No, um, so actually, I, I should mention too. Ted Post actually directed uh, a Clint Eastwood western. He did Hang 'Em High, which I um, am indifferent about. Cause it was Eastwood wanting to do kind of an American version of spaghetti Western, but kind of half-assed it, but Ted post did okay as a director. So there you go. There's our crossover for Clint Eastwood and Ted post. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah. So, and then next we have our writer being Rod Serling. He's back again. Um, yeah, it's, he, he did this episode. So there we go. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know how much more we can dive into him. I, I know I keep on saying this. I'm like a broken record when it comes to, uh, like mentioning Rod as they, uh, the writer and not really going into anything he's done, but I mean, he's the creator of the series. So how much more do you have to say about Rod Serling? Yeah, it's, and there'll be some notes. I have, I have a couple different, uh, and, um, uh, excerpts regarding uh, this script uh, and Ted Post's reaction to it, um, and some of it, uh, you know, regarding Rod's writing. So, yeah, we'll we'll get there when we get there. Okay, and so into cast we go. So we got uh, Richard uh, Basehart. Um, he plays Cook. We'll leave it at that. He plays <laughs> Cook, um, and he was in Moby Dick, a uh, hundred and ten episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. And Man Eater. So Man Eater, Man Eater, I have not seen. Uh, I've never really heard of it, but the synopsis is interesting enough. I wanted to bring it up. So it's a 1973 film. Uh, two couples on a camping trip are hunted by two tigers set upon them by a crazed animal trainer. Uh, I mean, I'm in. I'm that in. sounds good enough to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm in. I just, I was like, I was like, is this what the Hall and Oates song is based off of? That's what I was wondering. But that doesn't sound like it. Yeah. Uh, what, what was that? What's that uh, docu-series? Uh, was it uh, Tiger King or Tiger whatever? King, yeah. Joe I mean, Exotic is the seeking, uh, the sicking tigers on people. Um, like as much as I, as much as that'd be a terrible thing, I'd watch it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, that was popular. So I, I, I 
I'm willing to watch this. <laughs> so, I mean, I love, um, you ever seen the ghost in the darkness? No, I know what you're talking about. That's is, um, that's Michael Douglas and Brad Pitt, right? I think it's Val Kilmer. Oh but, uh, yeah. It, uh, <laughs> Takes- You're right. Sorry. At that point in time, you could have flipped them out, right? That, that, that was like uh, when Val <laughs> Kilmer, before he started putting on the weight in Brad Pitt as he's going up, right? So, yeah. You're right. I think you're right. Yeah. And that, that that's uh, based on a true event of uh, two lions that were hunting down people in, in Africa. And I was just like, as soon as I read this synopsis, I was like, I love the ghost in, uh, in the darkness. And I was like, this just sounds right up that alley. So if you like films where ant- big cats are killing people uh this might be your thing yeah. <laughs> so, if you want something from, if you want something we'll from see. the 70s that's one i'm also going to toss out that wonderful film roar uh that I've, I've talked about on the show before i think i've i think i've had terry watch that where it is a number of large cats going after people but it's all family fun yeah so here we go people there's two films that uh Paul has made me watch and I can't wait to watch them again. So <laughs> I, I like made you watch. Like I like, it's just like, like we're talking like clockwork orange style where I just strapped you to a chair and just like forced your eyes open the entire time. I'm like, you need, look at the baby, look at him. Just look at him, you know, like, yeah. Uh, so anyway, Funny enough that I, I thought the exact same thing when you, when you were about to say that to the clockwork orange. Scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, all right. So, uh, with Richard Basehart, uh, he was also in three episodes of playoffs 90. Uh, he was the, he was Wilton Knight in the pilot episode of Knight Rider. So his narration that you hear at the beginning of the episode is actually him that plays in every episode of Knight Rider. So that's cool. Uh, he has a very, you know, his, his speaking voice is quite great. Like his, his line delivery is fine, but he has that very distinguished voice. But also, um, from Zanesville, Ohio. So an Ohio connection there. Yeah. I forgot to, I forgot to put that in my notes. Uh, yeah. So, uh, go Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> um, which which so yeah, wasn't, next- wasn't it near Zanesville where that one guy had the private animal reserve that he let all the animals loose and they were trying to find tigers and lions out in Ohio. Was that around there? Ironically, I do think it was in Zanesville. Uh, I just listened to a podcast uh, that was talking about that event, and I, I'm almost positive that it was in Zanesville. So, go. yeah, that's a weird connection. Huh. <laughs> yeah, unfortunate, yes. But anyway, um, yeah, that's it. So Richard Basehart, um, yeah, kind of reminded me a little bit of Brian Cranston, the way he kind of like looked and kind of carried himself a little bit. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah, uh, he's got that kind of look. Um, I didn't really recognize him from anything else, but, uh, no, so who else do we have here? uh, Yeah. Uh, so we have Antoinette Bauer. Um, she plays Norda. We'll just leave it at that again. Um, she was in prom night, Hawaiian eye and, uh, the evil that men do, which is a Charles Bronson film from, uh, 84, which I'm really excited to dive into. Yeah. I've not seen that one either. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm starting to, uh, appreciate, um, like late, late stage Bronson. Right. So that's one of those ones that, uh, I think, um, it was around the time of like death wish, like three and four that he made that one. So yeah. I'm, and also 10 to midnight. So I, I do want to get to the evil that men do. Um, there's another film that she was in that I think this sounds like something right up your alley. It's from 78 called die sister die, which in German, that would be called the sister, the, um, the actual synopsis of the film is a man hires a nurse to care for his ailing, but nasty and shrewish sister. What he really intends to do, however, is to convince the nurse to join him in a plot to kill her. 
I'm game, man. Let, let's do a double feature. We'll watch that and uh, and uh, what was it, uh, Man Eater? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that, that dumb German joke was from The Simpsons. Whenever uh, Sideshow Bob had a Die Bart Die tattoo, and he was like, "No, it's German for the Bart, the you know." So, um, <laughs> all right. So, um, yeah, I know it's dumb. Dumb as all get out. We ha- I have two <laughs> other people here. Um, one was on screen, and one was a voice that we heard. So, do you have notes for those guys? Uh, yeah, so Harold uh, Gould, um, so plays a uh, General Larrabee. Larrabee, uh, I think. Larrabee, yeah. Larrabee, yeah. Um, he was in a bunch of episodes of Golden Girls. Uh, that's where I knew him from. He was Miles on Golden Girls. I feel weird knowing all that much uh, that much knowledge about Golden Girls, but I love Golden Girls. Oh, I'm not going to apologize. And then he was also in the Freaky Friday remake um, with Jamie Lee Curtis and oh. Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. So what I have here for uh, Harold Gold is, well, one, yeah, I, I mentioned, um, I had my notes here, 12 episodes of Golden Girls, which join us for our next podcast where we watch the Golden Girls in sequence. That's not true. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> he actually appeared in um, a pilot, which was later broadcast as a, a single episode in 1972 of love American style called love in the happy days. He played Howard Cunningham, the frustrated father of a young man named Richie Cunningham played by Ron Howard. So this was actually like the backdoor pilot for happy days. When ABC turned that episode into a series called happy days, Gould agreed to reprise the role of Howard Cunningham. However, when production um, was delayed, he went abroad to perform in a play midway through the play's run. After learning the series was beginning to, to start shooting, he decided to stay with the play and then that is what led to uh, Tom Bosley getting the role of Howard Cunningham. That's fascinating. I had no idea that he was uh, linked to the series. That's cool. Yeah, and, and Gould will also later state that a requirement to to, to be uh, Howard Cunningham on uh, Happy Days would would be for him to shave his beard, and he was like, "Nah, I'm not going to do that." So I thought that was funny. Yeah, stay strong, man. Our our beards need to stick around as long as possible. Like no one's gonna bring us down, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's what I got for uh, Harold Gold. And and the last person we have here, uh, yeah, who do we have? Uh, Barton Heyman, uh, Lieutenant Blaine, uh, Basketball Diaries for him, and The Exorcist. Those are the only two uh, credits that I had known. Yeah, so I had The Exorcist. I didn't. I didn't realize Basketball Diaries, but a lot of small parts in TV and film. Uh, so he actually made guest appearances and you'll appreciate this on both of the longest running primetime dramas in us television history with Gunsmoke and 55 and law and order in 1990, which I, I have seen both of those. Uh, I, I know that he did what a bunch of Westerns. He was also in raising Kane. Like he has a, a pretty established career and I just imagine uh, it's a matter of like me not knowing so much of his roles. Yeah. So I think he was actually the one that was like the most established of all these guys. So, yeah. And then I just want to mention here real quick that there was stock music from in this episode, but I believe a lot of it was from the episode back there, uh, which is that very haunting uh, harpsichord that we, I think we heard in a uh, death ship in season four. It's really cool music. And anytime I hear it, I, I get stoked. I really enjoyed that music cue in the, in this uh, episode too. I, it was really, it was kind of creepy. Yeah. So yeah, that's it. That's our, that's our cast and crew. Um, let's just get into, uh, certainly introducing probe seven over and out. One Colonel cook, a traveler in space 
He's landed on a remote planet several million miles from his point of departure. He can make an inventory of his plight by just one 360-degree movement of head and eyes. Colonel Cook has been set adrift in an ocean of space in a metal lifeboat that has been scorched and destroyed and will never fly again. He survived the crash, but his ordeal is yet to begin. Now he must give battle to loneliness. Now Colonel Cook must meet the unknown. It's a small planet set deep in space, but for Colonel Cook, it's the Twilight Zone. Yeah, so um, uh, probe seven over and out. I mean, this is, it's an episode of, of two of two tracks, right? I think this is the way we want to approach this. One is Cook uh, crash landing. Uh, and I just want to point out that the set, the set of this is amazing. The crash ship is really cool. Like the out, the exterior, uh, there's reasons for that. I have trivia about that that set. It was nice to have an outdoor set. The crash looks like a legitimate crash, which you don't always get on these shows because of lower budgets. Um, so that was nice. It's him being like, you know, the spaceman out in space and landing on this foreign planet. And being alone and 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 no way to get home. The other track is him finding out what's going on uh, back home via communications from base, where they're saying, um, "Yeah, no one's coming. Uh, we're we're minutes away from war. We're probably not going to make it." So that's the two tracks in this episode. I don't know how much we really want to get into the details because the um, the plot. It, it, <laughs> You can feel that Serling was like, I need to, I need to come up with like 23 minutes of dialogue. I got it. We're going to do this. We're going to have a guy talk, talk to a ship and to a screen and yell outside for a minute. And then things will happen in the last three minutes. That's what I feel like this episode is. No, I, I think you're, I, I think you're dead on with that, man. I'd say there isn't a whole lot of meat here. Um, to discuss. And I think that you're on the right track when you say that it's kind of, Two storylines where we're talking about uh, Cook's home planet and like what they're dealing with, and and what he's ba- basically dealing with on his end, and f- hoping to feel some 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 sort of sympathy from base. And I, you know, it's like when it comes to what the home base is dealing with with the inevitable war and that. Yeah, uh, I don't really see uh, Cook getting a whole lot of sympathy here. I mean, <laughs> even in the one part of a uh, dialogue uh base told him like hey man like uh we got our own things going on here it's it's a matter of like looking at one versus like millions and i don't really see like us really being able to do anything much more for you yeah and and so like um the the, the other thing too we should mention is that he starts to figure out that like he may not be alone because the trees shake there's weird shapes on the ground uh, you know, so he thinks that there's other things going on, but not like, but a lot of, of the, a lot of the first half of this is just him, you know, bagging on parts of the ship, uh, to try to get like the, the battery power up so it can communicate with back home. And I, I just want to point out though, like the, the, the gentleman who plays, um, Larrabee, Harold, Harold Gould, like he delivers a lot of like devastating, like concepts in a very straightforward of like, well, just to let you know, we're probably going to war. And then the next time is like, just to let you know, we did go to war. The East Coast was destroyed in a matter of 12 minutes. So how are you doing? Like, it was very much like, you know, might get rain today. Got some rain yesterday. How are things on your end? Yeah, I, 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 and I understand where Cook is coming from. But the fact that 
you know, he's talking to this general in such a, a manner that it's like, it's one-sided for, for cook. And, you know, it's like, sure that that makes sense. But Larrabee is general Larrabee is like a very patient dude when it comes to like explaining the facts to him. <laughs> even the fact that he even is still reaching out to cook at this point is kind of surprising to me. Yeah. And I like that. He was like, uh, yeah, he's like, you should make contact for, you know, two reasons. One, you know, just in case the things change and two to combat the loneliness. I'm like, well, thanks man. I appreciate that. You know, I got to combat that loneliness. Uh, but yeah, so the other thing we should mention too, cook has a busted arm. Um, but yeah, like he just, just when you see the wreckage of the ship there, there is no hope of him ever getting off of whatever he is now. Right. So, uh, and then, so there's various points where he gets out of the ship and looks around. He sees all the vegetation, sees like all the stuff going on, which I thought was funny that he uh, says to Larry, but he's like, you know, I don't know. This whole planet might be like an internal night. I'm like, I don't know. You're seeing, you know, foliage around you that, you know, needs sunlight. I'm going to guess that there's going to be light eventually. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, cause there's a lot of like, you know, greenery around that probably wouldn't exist without the sun. Um, but all things considered the place where he lands, it's like, it could be worse. It could have been like hell's butthole that we had. And, um, was on, on Thursday, we leave for home where it was just, you know, the rock city with like, you know, nothing but rocks and then more rocks and then sand. No, that's, that's a good point. I, it, I think that, uh, cook had ended up in a, a very, uh, different situation where, uh, maybe he wouldn't have been able to, uh, feel so. I don't know, like, I, I, I guess, like, fortunate. Like, I, I feel like he has to feel fortunate at this point. Like, you're saying, like, all the vegetation and that. And he even says that he's found some kind of fruit. And he thinks it might be edible. Like, I, I don't know, starvation or possible death. I'll just, I'll, I'll deal with possible death to at least get a bite to eat. <laughs> yeah, what, I mean, we don't know if this fruit, we don't, we don't know if the fruit is pre-bomb fruit or not, but you know, we'll figure that out later. No, I'm just, uh, you know, it just, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's put, he's put in a, a terrible situation and we can, we can understand that we can sympathize with it. It's just like, and, and I understand what Sterling's trying to get across with all this. It's just, I, there's a lot of, there's a lot of telling and not showing sometimes with, with Sterling's dialogue where it's like, you couldn't you can get the gears turning and show us like what cook is going through without him having to like, like monologue the entire time. And he, he is nothing but a monologue machine. And that doesn't make me sympathetic to him. Yeah. And I think the way that it's handled doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless like he's been there for a extended period of time. And it shows him like going through like the, the stages of insanity we don't get that. Like he just crashed and he's sitting there talking to himself and he's, he's just going out and, you know, after he sees that there is uh, some weird dirt drawings, he's like looking for uh, somebody, anybody to want to talk to him. And it's like, dude, how long have you been in this scenario where it's like, you're losing it and you, you want to talk to alien creatures that just happen to draw something in the dirt. Well, okay. Yeah. The, <laughs> I did. Did you think that the, the circle drawings were actually going to pay off in a bigger way than they were? Cause I honestly was like, that's kind of cool. It's interesting. Cause 
like are they drawing like the um the rockets on the back of the ship that are almost in the same pattern are they drawing there is a door that's behind him in the ship that has like a twisty it's like a twisting valve that's a circle with four circles in them i'm like because later on that door closes i'm like is there something bigger going on here no no I don't, I really don't know what the circles are trying to establish other than there is intelligent life on this planet. I didn't really see the point of it at all to tell you the truth. Like other than just like, like a piece to move things along for storyline. I, I just can't imagine an intelligent life form sitting there drawing in the dirt to try to communicate with whoever is in this, this like crash ship. I just don't see that. That like, doesn't make any sense. It would have been more effective for him to walk outside and see like a piece of paper stuck like on the side of the rocket. And he would pull it off and have been like, nice parking job, asshole. And be like, who wrote this? Where show yourself. <laughs> like, yeah. come on. Yeah. <laughs> are, are you friendly circle? Yes. Or circle? No. Yeah. And then just leave it. Like, it's it's actually a flyer for the aliens dj set later like oh god damn it like you know i don't need to go to this like i know i just i know i'm just new to the neighborhood i don't need to go to somebody's like you know like ipod turntable shit i don't need that right now you know my arm's broken i got things to worry about um so so yeah like but then like you know eventually like another thing too in the episode like we see these trees shaking like violently when we figure out what's actually going on why was that happening? Like, I know I get lost. Like if I'm running, if I'm going to run out of the woods and hit stuff, like I might cause some disruptions, but that is like an active ongoing, uh, disruption going on with those trees. I, uh, and the, the event that leads up to this was hilarious. I actually was laughing out loud when I saw it. So cook is outside of this ship and he sees the, the drawings in the dirt and he's like, well, there's got to be somebody out here. So he's like yelling out, like, come over here and talk to me. Let's like, shake like, hands. Let's I need a friend is yeah. what he actually says. Yeah. Yeah. Let's play pinochle. Like, <laughs> let's do something like, and all of a sudden he takes a rock to the head. <laughs> <laughs> no, not just that. Like he looks to the left and then he looks to the right. So within seconds of him turning his head, this rock just comes out of frame and just hits him on the, like the neck, like right below the ear. And he goes out like a light, um, spoiler. Um, I think I'm going to post the first gif I've ever made from an episode, uh, showing that impact this week when people look at the Facebook page. Yeah, I, I, I loved it because it just, it sets a tone for the rest of the events. In my mind, at least, it, I was like so looking forward to what was going to happen next. I'm like, is this going to be some like um, Gulliver's cha- uh, like Gulliver's Travels kinds of thing? Like where like plotline where it's like now he's strapped to the ground and there's a bunch of like uh, brownies all around him or whatever. Like yeah. I was looking for something so much more fascinating just because of that rock. I was like, this is gonna be cool. What are we gonna get? And he wakes up. And it, he goes into the ship area uh, again, and as soon as he gets in there, he sees that um, the one bulkhead or whatever closes and latches, mm-hmm. and he can't get in. So he knows that there's something on the other side that's at least intelligent enough to lock the door, and he cannot get it out of there <laughs> by simple like demands. So he he go ahead he goes ahead and he says, 
well, hey, I'm going to go outside. Like, like he's expecting this thing to understand that well, he's going to go outside. So, so two, things, telling- <laughs> yeah, two things I want to mention. One, when he gets knocked out, there's a lot, there's the last transmission from, uh, you know, his home world saying like, uh, we're done now. Things are bad here. I hope whatever world you find is like one without like fear. And it gets cut, cut halfway off as he's collapsed outside. And that's somewhat effective. But then fast forward to what you're talking about, where he's like looking at that door and he takes the, um, he takes the metal bar. You, you skipped over the thing that I thought was going to be the most delightful part of the episode for you. He taps the door three times, like three distinct hollow taps that sound like the 20 fathom uh, grave there. Uh, Terry, you remember that from season two of, uh, sorry, season four, episode two. Like you hear the taps from the submarine. I thought you would be super excited to hear the taps come back. I, I guess it wasn't that clear of a, a connection for me to, <laughs> want to discuss that episode. I, I was again. hoping. I was hoping you'd be like three taps. God damn it! And you just get like triggered. You just get. You're like I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with this episode. You know. <laughs> I yeah. I I didn't make that connection, but yeah, that's. Uh, I, I guess that's fun enough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and um. So yeah, so he he tries to communicate with this thing, and he he thinks, well, he's sure enough that at least that simple human commands or a simple human language will get through to whatever's on the other side. So he of course has to explain everything he's going to do to whatever this this thing is on the other side because we don't even know if it's a, a like an intelligent life form, but it's intelligent enough to know that it's going to barricade its on itself on the other side. Yeah. And I I do respect that. He, he even says out loud where he's like, you may not know my words, but I hope you understand my tone. Like at least least, that's acknowledgement there that like works a little bit, but I like his thing of like, you're going to hear me walk away and my fading footsteps will tell you that it's okay to go. And I thought of the cable guy when Matthew Broderick's looking Mm -hmm. through the peephole at Jim Carrey and he's like, okay, I'm going to go now. And he just like, does like the fake stepping away. I'm gone. Like I'm just waiting for him to take, I'm waiting for cook to take like three steps, like, like, you know, softly away and be like, I'm leaving, you know, (laughs) like you can come out now, whatever you are. I was expecting that. I I love that you made that comparison because I was thinking of the exact same scene. (laughs) 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 It's like, dude, he's got to do, he's got to do the fake, right? He's got to, because he's going to sit right outside the door and, and do the whole spiel. And then as soon as the door opens up, he like, he jumps on it, whatever yeah. it is, which he does not do. <laughs> but I all I also give the episode credit that when he when he leaves the ship, this is when we actually see it in daytime. Um, well, he woke up in daytime. I'm sorry, but like, there's a nice crane shot of him leaving the ship, and we should also mention that this thing is like it's on a bit of a slope, and he has a broken arm. Um, and also, I just want to mention now he ends up saying to. Um, I think he says to, to command, he's like, I have a broken arm and a broken rib. Yeah. That, yeah, that won't pay off later. Um, wink, but this is the one time every other time he's come down that little tiny slope, he's been okay. And this is the time when he actually falls on his broken arm. And that was the one moment of the episode where I'm like, I, I had to wince. Cause I'm like, that had like, if you put yourself in the mindset of the character and what's going on, it's like, you, you already have a bad situation. You've just made it worse. That had to hurt. Oh, most definitely. Especially if like you factor in how the break may have happened, that it could be life threatening if you think about it. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel for cook at this point. Uh, and it's especially when you think about the fact that there is no help coming, there is no possibility 
of somebody coming along and helping him out. And if there was, they may not even get there in time to save his life if there is life-threatening. Yeah. So we have him stumble out, uh, roll over his arm, which is bad. And then um, as he uh, like wanders away into the vegetation, uh, this is when we start to find like he hears like this thing leave the ship and he sees all, all of the branches move and all of the fo- you know foliage and whatever, the ground clutter. And he goes after whatever it is. And um, yeah, Terry, I'll leave you to tell the, the first big revelation of the episode um, that we find out what this is. Yeah, so uh, he chases whatever this is down and realizes it is that it is a, a woman or at least a creature that looks exactly like a woman. And when he tries to communicate with the this being, um, there's like barely any dialogue that he's able to get out of it. So he knows for a fact now at least that um, it doesn't speak his language. Um, there, it like, it's like in weird gargled or garbled language, like it, from what I, the notes that I found online, it's actually backwards, uh, letters yeah, or whatever. It, yeah. like, it's like scrambled English. Yeah. So, um, so he tries to, um, tell her about, you know, who he is, how he got there, the crash and all that stuff with his dirt drawings because he oh, you know, he figures at least if she left dirt drawings then maybe that's the way to communicate with her is with more dirt drawings but it's like he this is one of the dumbest sequences I've ever think I've seen in the twilight zone uh, and I'm going to put this firmly at Serling because this is the dialogue that he wrote where he you know, you're given cook to be like here I'm going to draw in the dirt here, and he draws a circle he's like this is my galaxy and then he draws another line he's like and my ship got away from and it's like not None of these things are going to register with her. All she's seeing is you drawing a circle in the ground and then you're drawing another line off. And it's like, and if this is backyard football, you're just telling her to go wide, right. And you're going to throw the ball to her. We know that's what you're going to do. And then he, um, you know, asks her like, you know, where are you from? What's going on? And then she draws a circle and then he makes this observation of like, like, he's like, Hey, he's like, Oh, so your, your planet like was, orbiting the sun and then it went off track and that's i'm like oh my gosh like you're extrapolating way too much maybe she's just like hey he drew circles i drew them before let's just draw some circles like he is assuming way too many things here and i understand we're looking at the 60 years past and there's a very short amount of time to communicate what's going on in this episode but come on rod you could have you could have taken it like a second pass at this and come up with a better way to set this up. My note on this, this, this sequence is they play Pictionary cook wins question mark. So, <laughs> <laughs> you summed it up better than I did. It just, it, it pissed me off. Like I was laughing watching it, but I'm like, this, this can't be what's going on right now. I don't, I don't, I really thought that maybe I wasn't in the, the right frame of mind when I watched the episode, uh, previously, to my last showing, which was today, just so I had it fresh in my mind, because I really felt like there might have been something I was going to miss or something. So I really focused in on the episode today to really try to see the, the, the subtleties that maybe weren't really that clear to me prior. And I was just more angry the, the, the second <laughs> viewing. I was like, <laughs> I was just like so dumbfounded by how like how much of a fail it was. Like, I really feel like up to this point, 
it is a clear fail to me as an episode, but there's more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I like it when they're trying to talk and then, and, and he, you know, she says M M cause she's talking backwards, right? Like, you know, whatever. And then, you know, Norda, we find out her name is, um, uh, but then I like that the whole thing of like him pantomiming, like eat food, you know, like, I don't know. Something about that was like, it, it, you know, I get it. Like you're trying to find a common ground that that's fine, you know? Um, and then at one point he was like, all right. Um, you know, I have food at my place. I can provide you companionship, you know, like what else does companionship mean other than like, you're a woman and I'm a man and this is what's going to happen right now. Like it just, when I say to you, this, it's going to snap together in your head because considering who like Sterling wrote the screenplay as well, this, this is, um, this is Charlton Heston and Planet of the Apes, <laughs> like talking to Norda, you know, being like, I don't know what's going on, but you're a woman and I'm a man. And that's what's going to happen. Cause it is the American way. I, I guess that gets us really close to what the synopsis is on yeah. this episode. Um, that was a terrible know. Chuck Heston impersonation for me, by the way. I just want to throw that out there. Like I just, I <laughs> not great, not great at all, but for, it, forgivable. <laughs> yeah, it, it occurred to me today. Like I was out and about like uh, running some errands, um, you know, in this hellscape that we're on, um, you know, not as much vegetation right now because it is the winter. Uh, but, I, I I was getting out of my car and I was like, yeah, I was like, you know what? I was like, this feels like a dry run from Planet of the Apes, like in a lot of ways. And we'll get to the ending. You could tell that this is the thing that was percolating in uh, Sterling's head the entire time. I think that's fair. Um, I, I think there are some decent roots here as far as like uh, something that you can like extrapolate from and make a really decent storyline. But I, you know. Uh, we'll, we'll get. I guess we'll get to our opinions if we have not gotten there yet. But um, so yeah. So she explains that she is Norda. He explains that he is Cook, and then he he tries to make some gestures about like continuing on or whatever. And then he picks up the the rod or whatever he had that that stick, <laughs> that metal whatever it is. And of course, she takes it as a, a possible threat, and she hits him, and then she runs off. Yeah, because like whenever he doesn't have the 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 rod in his hands, uh, she's like community, you know, well, like is like open to, to 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 engaging him. But the moment he picks up what is like in essence a weapon, that's when she runs away. And um, and then yeah, she does this. She like she does like a cat scratch on his neck, on his face, and he's like, oh, okay. I, he's like, I figured what this is all about foreplay. That's not what he says. Uh, so. Um, yeah, like uh, he ends up going back to his ship and I just want to point out, this is another thing that made me laugh when I saw it. He is like supposedly doing like this big, like, you know, um, last big uh, commentary to nobody because his, his home world is destroyed, but he goes back and where, where was it? Um, there was one area of the ship that had this big sign on it that said prior transmission recordings. Cool. I'm glad that you had an entire like side of the ship set up for this. So he plays back the dialogue we heard previously. Um, I want to also now call our podcast prior transmission recordings. I think that'd be a good name for our show. Uh, but he hears everything going on. And then he like talks a lot about how like, man, you know, man's always its worst enemy. And like, if we could like, we're, we're like basically saying our um, inclination to always want to arm ourselves 
and attack things that we don't understand is going to be our undoing. And that's the big morality. Like this, that's, that's the, that's the nail. Serling's going to hammer until he breaks the board in two with this episode. I mean, I, I think there was a better way to approach it, but I, I it, it's decent enough for this episode because, you know, Cook not being able to uh, hear the last communication from the base and a dude really has Sorry, to grasp the prior transmission recording. Get it right, please. Yeah, uh, AKA, <laughs> AKA the answering machine. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm surprised it didn't have like, uh, whenever the guy was trying to transmit, it, it was like uh, a parody ghostbuster song about like, leave a message at the tone, you know, I'm like, Oh shit. I'm sorry. Cook. I missed you, but I do like your machine <laughs> message. Yeah. It's a, I, 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 I think that it's a, it's an interesting, uh, a tool to move things forward again. And like, him get a, a little bit more of a a grasp on the reality that what is his situation. Like he can't talk to these people anymore. Yeah. They're gone. Like this was their final goodbye in a sense. So it's like, so he, a cook's got to be feeling like shit at this point. Cause not only is he, he knows that the, the base is probably done for and he's not going to hear anything from them. Um, he's probably on a, a, a quick road to death because of his injuries and that. Uh, and the, the chick that he just tried to pick up, scratched him in the face and ran off. So I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, if you were cook right now, how would you be feeling? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very shitty Saturday. Yeah. That's what I'd say. Like you're losing, you lost your home world. You got no new prior transmissions to get into. Um, you know, you upset the one girl you found, uh, fruit might be poison. You know, your, your arm and rib is busted, you know? He's probably had better days. Yeah, most definitely. So, you know, after his message, uh, Cook is he's gonna he's gonna venture out. He's I mean, what else has he got to do at this point? So he gathers he gathers up some supplies and he's gonna check out some other areas around, uh, see if they're like, you know, it's a fruitful search and see if he can like maybe make a better life for himself instead of like this basically it's a giant casket at this point. If he yeah. stays in the ship, he's gonna die. Yeah, this is this is the opposite of Matt Damon in The Martian. You know, like he, you need to go out there. You can't stay in there. So he he goes to leave with the duffel on his back, uh, and he goes outside and sees that Norda is there, and he's like, and and he's like, oh, I'm glad you're back. And then she says something, and he does like the the biggest piece of shit man thing of like, he's like, of course you can come along. It's like you don't know what she's saying. She could be like, I've told my people here that you're a threat and they're coming to kill you. And he'd be like, come along woman, you know, like whatever. Um, so they, they talk for a minute kind of, and then, um, he's like, he says to her, he's like, he's like, ah, he's like, I think I'm going to go. Like, I think there's some kind of, there's some kind of garden over there. And I wrote my notes, an olive garden and there's unlimited breadsticks and pasta. Um, but, um, they start to learn each other's names. Uh, he also picks up a pile of dirt. I'll get to the names in a second. And he was like, what, what, what do you call this? And I know it's supposed to be kind of funny, but she's like, eat. He's like, no, 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 you can't eat dirt. You know, like, you know, you shouldn't. Um, and, and, and then she's like, uh, you know, Erta, earth. And he's like, earth, that's what we'll call this place. And he's like, and my name is cook, Adam cook. And then she's like, Norda. Eve Norda. And then they both turn to the camera and wink. 
that didn't happen, but you can't tell me it didn't. So I yeah, my notes are uh, find out Cook's first name is Adam. Conveniently, Norder's first name is Eve, <laughs> and, and it's like my next note is let's go pick some apples. <laughs> <laughs> not apples, Terry. They're not apples. What are they? Oh, what it? Damn, I can't remember what she calls it. Like what? Because it's a garbled language again. Sepla. They're seplas, Terry. Sepla. That's what the apples are. They are. Sepla. <laughs> Sepla. Yeah, man. I feel like there are so many other ways that they could have gotten to this uh, this ending, but it's, here we are. So, yeah, that's. Uh, Right? Big plot twist. <laughs> yeah, it's Adam and Eve, uh, you know, supposedly. He has a broken rib, uh, you know. Uh, he speaks English. She speaks uh, reverse English. She's backmasking, calling forth the devil, whatever. Uh, and then apples are called seplas. And then they wander off, and there's this wonderful, like, a lighthearted music. And it's like, well, you know, basically, Serling's saying, like, this is what, what we see here, but it, there's the notion of like um, reality becoming a legend and who knows, right? So there we go. Um, but yeah, that's your episode. I also, I, uh, two things I want to point out here before we get to trivia. Uh, one, um, when I was younger, uh, I, I'm left-handed. Uh, that's, I mean, if people want to turn off this podcast right now because they're disgusted by me, I understand. Uh, but when I was in kindergarten, um, evidently... Uh, <laughs> the teachers thought I was uh, dyslexic because I would write with my left hand, but I'd watch all the right-handed kids, how they're like writing out their letters. And I was watching them and I was writing it backwards because I was watching them because I was using my left hand and copying them. And my mom was like talking to teachers like, he's not dyslexic. He's left-handed, you know, and they're like, Oh, but one of the projects we had growing up is we would draw like this, like piece of paper. I don't know how they did it. I was obviously I was a kid. And they would um, put, they glaze it onto a plate so your parents could always show you how shitty of an artist you were when you're like five and you always have it <laughs> hanging up in your house. Um, so I made my, my picture and I signed it with my name backwards. So there's a plate somewhere that has the name Luop out there somewhere. So um, yeah, that, that is my name according to uh, Norda. I am Luop. Like I, I, I want to point that out. I thought that was funny. Uh, also, uh, a couple of days ago, my wife went to the grocery store and she brought some apples and I was putting them away and I kept saying Sepla and she looked at me like I was an idiot and I was like Sepla and I kept holding up to Mary and she was not happy with me saying Sepla over and over again. I guess without context, yeah, I'd be upset with you. <laughs> <laughs> I was like Lua, but I kept tapping my chest. Sepla. You know, like <laughs> I hope. Uh, side note on on your artwork, I hope that it was hung strategically in front of a mirror, so that the one day when your mom looked in the mirror, she saw that your, your name was spelled correctly, and just like loses it, almost like in The Shining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like you know, it was a red rum moment. No, uh, I just I just remember that I I like being me. It's it's this this um, image of two like vehicles racing, but they have like. Like, the, just imagine just the shittiest version of, like, battle tanks racing and shooting at each other. And then because I couldn't understand how horizons work, there's mountains on the on the top of the plate. And then at the bottom is, like, like the sun because the, I didn't understand how horizons work. But there was, like, these battle tanks, battle tanks, 
battle tanks fighting with the name Luop scrawled on there somewhere. I've not changed much in that time. I just want you to know that. <laughs> I, I think it's uh, it's just a matter of world building. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I understand the horizon now. I understand how to spell my name forwards and backwards now. So I've, I've got a little better, but I, I hope to never not call Apple's Seplas from here on out just because it's so weird and dumb. Yeah. I, I don't know, man. I think you were really onto something when you were a kid, you need to tap back into that. Like you need to go and do hypnosis and tap back into that artwork and become, <laughs> become that, that child again. Who is talking like, now? New up is talking now. Like, Oh no. You know? <laughs> I, I, I think Ernest Klein could take something away oh, from your don't, world. Don't bait things. me, Terry. Do not bait me into talking about Ernest Klein. <laughs> me or Luop, do not do it. Um, now, just a side note, everybody, like you can usually tell if an episode is going to be like a good one to talk about or not on the, on the recordings of the show, because it's, it depends upon how much we drag our feet going into the actual recording of the episode. I think Terry and I talked for a good six months before we started recording. That's not true. It was like two hours of solid conversation about anything other than probe seven over and out. And, uh, and he, um, heard some of my, uh, frustrations with, uh, uh, Ernest Klein's uh, Magnum Opus Ready Player Two, which was just released a couple weeks ago, and I'd read it, told him my thoughts and feelings. If you guys want my thoughts and feelings, contact me directly. We're already talking about an episode of the Twilight Zone I'm frustrated with. I don't need to compound it, so I'm not going to do it. So, so to give you a, a timeline, uh, I had a broken arm before we uh, started recording and all that, and it's healed now. Yeah, so. and <laughs> I kept feeding, I kept feeding Terry Seplas like a little, like I just kept like you know. Just here comes the airplane, and I, I brought him back to health. It was pretty great. Now, vitamin C is a hell of a deal, man. Yeah. <laughs> it can do it a world of difference here. Uh, <laughs> a, a world of difference. <laughs> another Ted Post episode. Yes. So, all right. Um, yeah. Uh, this episode. Um, even like I, I feel like season five gets unfairly judged compared to the first three, I know four is like a weird thing. And we talked about that. You guys come back and listen to all that. There's some good there. There's bad. There's a lot of bad. Um, and I know that Sterling coming out of season three described himself as a sack of, um, potatoes rotting in the sun, like mentally exhausted. And we've even had episodes here where he's even admittedly saying, I'm going on vacation for a month. Here's the best I got. Um, so we know that he has been kind of run through, even if this was a, a season one episode, I think the whole twist of it was Adam and Eve and the world is starting wouldn't have been a revelation. I think it would have been more like you, you can go pound salt. Uh, and with that being said, there was an episode in season one that, um, I don't think he wrote. I think, uh, I'll look, I'm going to look it up right now. It's called third from the sun that, uh, that was, um, season one episode. I want to say it was either him or Matheson wrote. I'm going to look this up right now. Uh, no, actually it was, yeah, it was Rod Sterling. He wrote an episode called third from the sun that actually dealt with a lot of the same ideas of a world in collapse. Uh, that's giving into like, like an apocalypse and annihilation. These people are escaping on a UFO. And as they're, um, you know, trying to get away from what has happened, they're like, what, what, where we're going to go next. It's like that planet third from the sun. They call it earth. That's a much better episode. This one, it just feels like he just wants to hammer in that man's greatest enemy is itself. And that, you know, sometimes it's probably better to have the world end and start over and hope for the best 
with that being said, in light of the Kennedy assassination, like 10 days prior or, or whatever it was, um, math wise, um, this is probably the softest landing and probably what people needed to see was we're not going to ultimately destroy ourselves as long as we believe that we can move forward. So I think it worked in that regard. Otherwise though, just get this the hell away from me. I I understand that narrative, especially when you compare it to uh, like all the tragic events at this point. Uh, I just think that this might've been one of those episodes that would have existed better in the longer format of season four and padding it up and maybe like extrapolating a little bit on certain narratives that were going on. I just don't know if this episode was handled with the best hands um, and how it was presented to the audience. Because I, I mean, there's like, again, like I, I think that there are some, some interesting concepts here, but it just, it fell so flat for me. Yeah, and I, it's funny that you say that this probably would have been a better ep- a season four episode. It, you're right. I think the runtime could have been better served because then you could have had a longer time of the crash and the survival and hold out hope for you know somebody to come. And then maybe even, like this is me rewriting this, maybe even they're like, yeah, we got a rescue mission on the way. And it's like, and he's counting down the days. He keeps getting these world weird circle drawings. He doesn't understand. And then they're like, oh, by the way, um, uh, we're going to launch this today. And then within minutes you find out the broadcast that the world's over. Like that's when you take away the hope, right? Like that would be, that'd be the hammer that you, you need to get, you need to be brought to the lowest, uh, that you can be for this episode for when you get to the ending of like, Oh shit. Okay. Now I know what's going on. There's hope going forward. Like, this is Castaway with Tom Hanks, but instead, instead of a volleyball, you have a woman that has the personality of that volleyball. Unfortunately, um, I think Wilson had better dialogue in Castaway than, uh, <laughs> than Norda did in this episode. That's my hot take. I apologize. Nothing against the, the actress; she was fine, and she was not given much to do. Like so, she had like you have to turn something out of nothing. So uh, uh, Antoinette Bauer, like I give her credit. And also I'll draw parallels to the first episode of season three, two, where it's, it's Charles Bronson and, um, Oh, Samantha, that's, that's not, not Samantha Stevens. Uh, that's not her actual name. Uh, what's her actual name? Uh, bewitched. Cause she played Samantha Stevens, right? Is that, uh, is that the actress's name or the character's name? I think that's the actress's name. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm losing Elizabeth like, Montgomery uh, is the actress, but Samantha Stevens was the character. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, this is all very similar to that because Bronson plays a guy that's on one side of a war that has clearly, they're the last two left to their knowledge. And then we find out that she's Russian, but they can't speak to each other. And then they also decide they're going to try to forge a life together. This, this is a retread of a lot of that. And I'm not saying that's bad. Cause I mean, how many stories are there in the world? Right. In terms of like, a to B, like all the things that you and I love, they're like you can you can put them in a number of buckets and they're all gonna fall the same way. Um, however, I don't think that this goes in a different enough direction to warrant existence on its own. And that's me being harsh. It's just it's it's not it's not the worst episode of the Twilight Zone I've ever seen. It's just that it it carries itself in a way of being so self-important and self-righteous that it makes me not like it because it's trying to make a point when it did nothing the first 20 minutes. 
I, I get where you're saying. And I, I think those are fair criticisms. Uh, I, I have to agree with you uh, for the most part. I think that there's just something, there's something here though, that like Jordan Peele, if Jordan Peele wanted to come along to one of the, you know, the original series episodes that maybe he could put a spin on. I think that there's something here enough to the point where he could, he could tell a coherent uh, uh, story and be able to put a, a, a Jordan Peele twist into it that could be so fascinating and so um, connected to the viewers, especially today. I think there's enough here that somebody might get something out of this. I, and maybe we're being too too hard on it because, I mean, there's got to be people out there that love this episode. It has a, a 7.4 on on uh, IMDb, which is not terrible. No, that's, that's like, you know, yeah, you're right. That's, that's above average. Absolutely. So, I mean, there, there's somebody out there that digs this episode and I'd love to get uh, maybe some feedback um, for one of our listeners. Uh, if you like this episode, if this is something that you really, uh, you dug into and really enjoyed it, I'd love to hear what you got to say about it because I mean, I think that we're being a, a little bit too harsh on it. But I'd love to see the the opposing view um, to why you like this episode. Yeah, that's fair. So, um, yeah. Do you have any other uh, notes about the episode before I get into some trivia? And then we'll get into the <clears throat> twist and then talk about what we're doing next. No, let's, uh, let's hear that trivia, dude. All right. So, remembered, uh, this is from Ted Post himself saying, Richard uh, Basehart and Antoinette Bauer were terrific. We were given what was essentially a static script. It was all intellectual. And our challenge was uh, how to convert all of this intellectuality, I don't think it's a word, intellectually, whatever, I'm messing it up, into an emotional experience. That is uh, what we tried very hard to do. And I think the actors were happy to arrive at something emotionally they could play. So, yeah. So he, he admits he calls the script static. I don't think that's wrong. And he was trying to give them more to latch onto. Um, like, I know I compared um, Richard Basehart to, you know, Chuck Heston. Uh, it just, you know, again, the dialogue kind of, it doesn't, like, he, he did fine with it. I don't think the dialogue served him well. And then Antoinette Bauer as Norda, like, she had to, like, she she appeared terrified and uneasy. So, like, she did a good job selling everything with her eyes because she didn't have dialogue that made sense. Sepla. All right. So, um, all right. Let's see what we got. There's another thing here. Um, this is also another another quote from Ted Post. Uh, Richard Basehart and Antoine Bauer were prof- very professional actors who worked together. Uh, of all the episodes I filmed, that was a breeze. I recall the script was nothing out of the ordinary. Rod told me that he felt it could have been better. He granted me an exclusive to do what I could do to improve the scenes. Uh, with actors like Richard Antoinette, that was never a problem. So, yeah, uh, Ted Post coming out swinging, like not swinging, not not swinging. Like he's basically being like, "Yeah, this is a dialogue piece," and and uh, uh, Serling admitted as such and was like, "Do what you can to make this more dynamic." And I think Post did as best as he could uh, without making wholesale changes to the script. You know, I always wonder about. Uh a series like twilight zone and how it's uh, it, like it's structured being anthology would a director like Ted post have, uh, some kind of, uh, choice 
in the in the episode or the script that he was going to be able to do like do you think this was a choice of his or do you think that he just kind of like got signed on and took what they got i think he got signed on i think because he'd worked previously with serling on a world difference and they worked you know previously i think they worked like but, but anyway, either way they they had a working relationship he trusted serling i think that serling also was the kind of guy that uh, for the most part, unless he's getting like direct opposition from, I forget the name of the producer for season four. If this director says, Hey, I know where you're going with this. Can we do this? I think Sterling would have been open to that collaboration. I do feel like because a lot of the creative reigns or creative control was taken away from Sterling after season three with him submitting the script to post and to, you know, like CBS, he was like, here's what I got. If, if, if there's things you want to do, like, you know, do what you can. I don't think that Sterling had as much input on terms of like, like day of shooting of like, well, let's work together and changes. Cause he was not around. Right. So I think post, I think post made as many changes as he could, but he's the director. He's not a screenwriter. Right. So if there was probably dialogue or sequences that didn't benefit the episode, they probably cut them for sake of brevity. And thankfully they did. I mean, they kept the rock throw in there, so that's good. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think this is one of those ones where I think Sterling was burned out and also not anywhere near um, like the productions. And so he only has so much input. And also, I, I hate to admit it, I, I think that um, he didn't have as much heart um, just because of the way that he'd been uh, beaten to pieces the previous seasons. And it sucks. It really does suck because you know that the guy is capable, well, was capable of producing really extraordinary episodes uh, and storylines. And, you know, you get a few that are like this, where it just like, it seems to tarnish his reputation, but I mean, let's not take away from Rod Serling. He was an amazing talent and what he contributed to this world was it's, it's going to be difficult to match really. So I, I I really love Rod Serling. So it's like, this is just kind of like a, a, a tarnished spot on his yeah. record. I mean, this was ones that if you didn't know the highs of what the series could be and you were not aware of the lows of where it could go and you just show this, like they'd be like, ah, okay, that was okay. And I think that's kind of where it lands. I just think that you and I both understand of the extremes of like, you know, good and bad of where the series can be and what Sterling can put out that when you see a middling one that could have been better, but there doesn't seem to be that effort to kind of like tie it up. We'll just call as we see it. And that's what it is. Like, this isn't the worst. Um, you know, when we get to the end of the season, which we're still, you know, like a thousand episodes out, um, this might be one of those ones we get to of like, you know, swing and a miss, like it could have been better, but I don't think this is going to be the bottom. It's, it's not the top, but it's not gonna be the bottom. I mean, <laughs> here's hoping that here's hoping that every episode after this is better than this, but I don't know if that's going to be the case. Yeah, because we still have that uh, that that ripcord that we can pull. So. <laughs> yeah, there's an episode coming up called "You Drive" that I saw previously, and we'll we'll get there. All right, so um, all right, so last piece of trivia here before we get to the twist. In uh, a rare speeder cooperation, uh, Twilight Zone had purchased a spaceship mock-up created originally for ABC's Outer Limits. Uh, so the set uh, was already designed of the of the down spaceship. So um, they actually ended up uh, buying the crash ship to bring out and like the set piece. Uh, for, it was for an episode of the hour limits that was originally shown called specimen unknown. That was, uh, um, 
broadcast February 24, 64. So not too far after this. So I don't know the turnaround time on the outer limits. Uh, so they arranged, um, Daystar and Kyoga, Kyoga Productions, which is the company that makes the Twilight Zone, arranged for the purchase of the fake wreckage for use on this episode. So a rare moment where um, um, competing sci-fi anthology shows work together to be like, oh, did you spend too much money on the spaceship? We'll, we'll, we'll buy it from you and use it on our episode. And I, I think the set piece looks really great. Yeah, it worked really well for, uh, for the storyline and that. And uh, I, I think it was a... Uh, it was, I think it's probably one of the better set pieces that they've used in this kind of like narrative, like with a crash ship. Yeah. Cause it looks like a crash ship. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not flying again. So, all right. Um, yeah, that's going to do it for, for our discussion and notes about, uh, probe seven over and out. Let's just get to that twist. Uh, so in them being, uh, Adam and Eve, uh, on Ertha. And Seplas, I'll give it a three because the first half of this episode did not really, uh, it didn't give me anything going into this. And when we got to the end, I'm like, oh, this is where we're going. So I didn't see it coming. Doesn't make me happy about it, but I didn't see it coming. I'm going to go with a four. Uh, it, it really did surprise me in like how it got to the end. Uh, I thought that there might have been like some kind of, big scary monster maybe a wind walker looking thing that comes and gets him especially after you see all the bushes shaking as violently as they are uh i didn't get any of that so <laughs> i was very surprised and that's not a good surprise um but it, it's a four for me yeah so there we go so that's going to do it for our discussion about probe seven over and out and maybe never speak of it again yeah whatever it, it was it was fine it just wasn't great um so yeah that's going to do it for the discussion you guys can find us on facebook uh it's um strange highways podcast i will definitely be posting a gif of a cook getting struck in the neck by a rock it's quite fun uh you guys can email us directly at um strange highways podcast at gmail.com uh wherever you find your podcast rate and review us um you know on apple Podcasts, google music uh podbean stitcher um dollar tree i don't know where we get your podcast like that rate and review us uh tell others if you enjoy this um our conversation let others know uh, because the more the merrier and, uh, Terry, uh, what other social medias and things can people find us on? Okay. So we're creating havoc on, uh, uh, Instagram these days. Uh, we are strange highways podcast at Instagram. So check us out on there. Uh, we're, we're posting fun pics, um, from different episodes. Uh, you may even see us on there sooner or later. Um, if we ever get to take a picture of ourselves uh, anytime soon. Well, there's but, a photo of yeah, us wearing the same hat and I look like, um, like Jabba the Hutt wearing a, like a, like a hat and you're wearing a hat. That's the same hat. So people want to see us wearing hats from uh, the thing. I'm sure we could post that picture. Yeah. We're twinning. So <laughs> twinning, yeah, twinning, you, might, yeah. you might see I'm, us on there soon. I'm the DeVito. You were the Schwarzenegger. I get it. It's fine. You know? So, all right. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So um, next episode of the Twilight Zone, uh, we're actually going to skip a week, and we'll talk about more of that in a second. Is actually going to be uh, the seventh is made up of phantoms. Let me uh, let Serling tease that, and then we'll talk about what we're actually doing for for the Christmas holiday. And now, Mister Serling. Next on Twilight Zone, three National Guardsmen on a maneuver, traveling across the same ground formerly occupied by George Custer and an outfit called the Seventh Cavalry. Time in its infinite complexity meshes. 
And what evolves is a stunningly different story about soldiers and Indians suspended in limbo between then and now. On Twilight Zone next, the seventh is made up of phantoms. All right. So, yeah, we're going to get into uh, some history, uh, some General Custer, and I don't think that turned out that well. But, yeah, spoilers. Uh, but, yeah, so we're going to talk about that next episode of the Twilight Zone. However, our next episode of Strange Highways is not that. Uh, as we talked about last episode uh, during uh, Uncle Simon, we kind of decided on the fly that for the holiday, we're going to dig back into some Black Mirror. This is not a show that we've uh, covered in the last couple years, but we, like, way back... Uh, we had, there was an episode that was done where um, I talked about White Bear and um, 15, 15 million credits or 15,000 credits. Um, Black Mirror is an interesting show. If you guys have not watched it all its entirety, uh, it's all on Netflix. Go watch it. If you, I mean, 2020 has been a bad year. Uh, Black Mirror will still like, it'll make you still feel worse, but the storytelling is amazing. It's like the Twilight Zone, but with technology, I guess that's, that's kind of a, that's a very undercooked way of describing the series. However, uh, there is a Christmas episode they put out called white Christmas. It's like series three, episode four, find it. It's like 70 minutes. John Hams in it. Uh, it's a couple different stories. Terry's not seen this. I have, and what better way to celebrate Christmas than to watch an episode of black mirror. And, uh, I don't know, get the shit beat out of us by talking about it. Cause it is, it is a hammer of an episode. Uh, yeah, I guess pun intended for John Ham being in the Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, a hammer. Episode. Yeah, yeah, he's the hammer, yeah. Um, yeah, it's going to be really good episode. A lot to, to sink our teeth into. But, you know, to say that uh, we're going to feel happy about what happens. Black Mirror doesn't, like, I'd say nine times out of ten, it makes you just be like, oh. <laughs> Sometimes it makes you happy. This is not going to be one of those episodes, spoiler. But if you guys want to watch White Christmas along with us, it's going to Netflix. Uh, I think it's well worth the watch. I would not want to spoil a drop of the story for you if you've not actually seen it. Um, but yeah, we're going to dig into that. That's going to be our holiday special. I hope you guys join us for that. I think it's going to be a lot of fun getting really depressed. But I also feel like that's, you know, that's how I live my life. That's how Luop does it, you know. I'm, I'm super excited to talk about this episode, uh, talk about this series briefly. I have not watched any episode, which I feel completely like out of the loop because it is a very popular series. And I am excited in the fact that it's we're going to be putting this episode out on Christmas Day. So get excited, people. We're giving you the Christmas gift of Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah. So after you open up your, your, your presents... You know, say, say, you know, you appreciate your loved ones. You're going to listen to us talking about some black mirror and yeah, you know, you got, and then, you know, maybe after that, take a shower and then watch uh, wonder woman 84 and then maybe you'll feel better about life. I don't know, but yeah, it's going to do it for us this week. Uh, that's it for uh, probe seven over and out next week. Uh, white Christmas, black mirror. That feels like it's a concept album when I say that that way, but whatever. Anyway, let's go do it. Uh, do it for us. Uh, in the meantime, I just, you know, I just got to say Sepla, Terry, Sepla. All right. Sepla to you as well. Sepla. Yeah.